So I'm going to have you all, it's time change, so we've got to have a little audience participation here on the front side, make sure everybody's got their coffee and it's running through your veins, right? So I'm going to ask you to answer a question, but do it like to yourself. Don't make it weird for everybody else. It's a fill in the blank thing. So just to, to yourself, I want everybody to consider, if I were to ask you to fill in the blank, what would, you, what would your answer be? Jesus is my, but like to yourself, so it's still just for do, 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 to yourself thing. Jesus is my, I want everybody to have something. What's the first thing that jumps into your head? Interestingly, when you Google Jesus is my and you let Google fill in the blank, at the top of the list, no surprise, with over 1.4 million results, is Jesus is my homeboy. <laughs> Don't lie. Some of y'all, who, who thought, who filled in the blank with the word homeboy? Right here up front. Mr. Edwards, thank you for your, did you have the shirt? You didn't have the shirt. Raise your hand if you had the shirt. Everybody know, a bunch of, mm, no, there's some lack of, lack of honesty in here. Someone had that shirt. That way we know who to pray for. But yeah, Jesus is my homeboy. The other runners up were Jesus is my superhero. Jesus is my friend, a award-winning song by the great band Sunseed. If y'all are familiar with that, Jesus is my friend. Um, <laughs> uh, Jesus is my doctor. I get the whole healing thing, I, so there's a connection there. Jesus is my rock, Jesus is my savior. Over the years, we've come up with many ways to try to relate to and understand Jesus and try to wrap our heads around if he relates to and understands us. Some of those ways have been helpful. Some of those ways have been less than helpful. Some of those ways have simply been trendy, and maybe a little more marketable and look good on a t-shirt. But the ones with the real staying power are usually the ones designed by God himself. The ways that we understand Jesus, the way that we relate to him and see if he relates to us. First point of the morning is that God has designed us to understand Jesus in particular ways, not just however we wish. Let me say that again. God has designed us. He has this design over the course of thousands of years to understand Jesus in particular ways, not just however we wish. At, at Crosspoint, you'll hear three phrases that sort of encompass our values and our vision and our direction, and it's know God, be known, and make him known. And when we say know God, we don't mean figure out your personal way in which to know God. Because the reality is some, some, sometimes in our culture, people use language like, I'm just trying to figure out my truth. I'm just trying to figure out who Jesus just is to me. And that's not really how it works. If your version of Jesus is not the biblical version of Jesus, then you're worshiping an idol that you gave the name of Jesus. You understand that? God intends for his son to, to be understood and, frankly, to be, for us to behold him in a particular way. So this morning as we talk about the role of the high priest, we gain some insight into how God wants us to understand his son. Context is important. As you heard from some of our students, they just got back from Austin. Part of what they did was serving in practical ways, some good old manual labor. Others uh, would go out to the city parks and share the good news of the gospel. And I just want you to, and speaking of context, imagine going up to someone in a city park and saying, good news, Jesus is a high priest, a great high priest. Would they give their life to Jesus in that moment? Would they be forever changed? Without some context, that encouragement might fall flat. For example, 
I wouldn't be encouraged by the idea of a better high priest if I didn't understand the shortcomings of my current high priest. It's even more like, confusing if you don't have a current high priest. Or it actually gets a little more confusing if the priesthood we're talking about hasn't actually existed for over 2,000 years, though it did exist for 2,000 years before that, it hadn't existed for 2,000 years. There would be a need for context. I wouldn't be encouraged if I didn't understand what a high priest was or what their role was or what they were responsible for or where they came from in the first place. So this morning, God in his infinite wisdom is using a role that hasn't been around for over 2,000 years to help us understand Jesus. There's a way that he wants you to, to see and relate to and know that Jesus relates to you, and it's through this role. So let's consider the context for the Hebrew church, because it's different than ours. The hearers in the Hebrew church, as they would take these letters, they would read them aloud, they would have had over 2,000 years of history pertaining to the priesthood, to the high priest, to the entire temple, to the sacrificial system, and to the sacrifices. When they hear a reference to a high priest, they would have had some really well-established thoughts. We don't this morning. We're just like, ah, oh, yes, the high priest, very, very familiar. We probably have to, let's crack open the Old Testament, go take a look, try to jog the old memory. But they would have had really well-established thoughts. It would have been a part of the rhythm of their lives. Well-established thoughts about the high priest. So while the priesthood had been around for over 2,000 years for them, Jesus' ministry and his death and his resurrection had only been around for a mere 30 to 40 years. So their setting is kind of opposite from ours, where we're 2,000 years removed from a priesthood, but we have lots of established thoughts about Jesus. So we're coming at it from a little bit different angles, but the result is the same. We can understand our Lord through this role of high priest. That's our work to do this morning. We have to understand, too, is that the writer of Hebrews isn't trying to impose the priesthood on Jesus. It's not like a tactic. It's not like he's sitting there going, how can I get them to understand Jesus? This is kind of a new thing. I know I'm going to just sort of co-opt the whole priesthood thing and try to relate it to Jesus. He's not trying to force the priesthood on Jesus. It was always about Jesus. Again, God in his infinite wisdom said, I'm going to take a couple thousand years to create an entire system and a people to move and to live and have these rhythms of life in a way to where my people in any age until I come back can understand Jesus more. It was always about Jesus. God structured Israel and the temple and the priesthood and the 2,000-year sacrificial system in a way to help us wrap our heads around Jesus. It was giving us these parking places for these new thoughts related to Jesus that we wouldn't otherwise have if God didn't create them. A way to help us have understanding in the vast reality of the eternal Son of God stepping out of timelessness and into time in the fullness of time. I cued the AC to go off there for drama. Did y'all hear that? You didn't. You just felt it, right? No, it's Time Change Sunday. That was a really big statement for, some, for a bunch of people who lost an hour, an hour of sleep was stolen from us last night. Let me say that again. It is a helpful thing that God has done in this 2,000-year system to help us to have the understanding of the vast reality of the eternal Son of God stepping out of timelessness and into time 
in the fullness of time. We can't get that if God doesn't give us a way to get that. That doesn't help us at all if he doesn't intercede for us and and show us how it helps. And that's the work we're doing this morning. The unprecedented is a hard thing to wrap your head around, especially if it affects you eternally. And for over 2,000 years, there was this particular group of people who belonged to God, who had a a system and a pattern of life, and they were regularly acquainted with and reminded of these realities. There is a God. We are not right with God because of sin. We need someone to intercede for us. We need sacrifices to atone for our sins. When we talk about sins, we talk about atonement, we talk about sacrifice, we talk about interceding, none of it makes sense if God hadn't put this whole thing together to help us understand Jesus. So all of it, so that we can wrap our heads and our hearts around him, so that we can get him. If last week's sermon was, he gets us, this week's sermon is, we get him. We can. It's really important to understand Jesus God's design is not for us to look to Jesus and see sort of this nebulous, ethereal mystery that maybe one day we'll be able to understand in part. No, he wants us to behold the Son of God, to behold him in his role, to behold him in the things that he is currently doing for us. We should behold our Lord before we ever try to figure out how it applies to us. My wife reminded me last night that the sermon's kind of, it feels different to me. It just, frankly, feels clunky. I'll be honest. Um, And my wife was like, well, I think in 2023 it's a really great thing to be reminded that in our hurry to to just behold. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the high priest. And so we're going to take some time to do that this morning. When I'm teaching my fifth and sixth graders and Team Howard about how to study the Bible, I always say, before you ever ask, what does this mean for me, just say, what does it mean? Before you ever ask, what is this saying to me, just what what is it saying in its original context, and we're going to spend a little time on that this morning. Last week's encouragement was for us to confidently draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and help in a time of need. When I need help, I don't call a stranger. Imagine how weird that would be. Give that a shot. Pick up the phone, dial a number, be like, hey, you got a minute? It, no one does that because when we need help, we don't call strangers. I call a friend. I call someone that I can understand, and I, and I call someone who can understand me. And the reality here is that this role of high priest helps us to see why we should draw near to Jesus. It helps us to answer that question, like, can I really trust him? As, as you're reading through Hebrews, it's like there's so much repetition. Most of what we're talking about today, we've already talked about. And the things we're talking about today in chapter 5, we're going to completely talk about them again in chapter 7. Tim Keller has a book on preaching that says, preaching verse by verse allows God to set the agenda for your community. And apparently the agenda for our community is to hear some of the same things over and over and over and over again that we might have this chance to behold Jesus the right way over and over and over again. It's all kind of coming together. That's why it felt clunky this week. I was like, didn't we already preach this? Like, well, yeah, actually we did like four times. And I, I even had a quote. I was like, man, I found the perfect quote for part of the sermon. And then I had this nagging feeling. I was like, have we used that quote yet? 
And so I texted Pastor Kai and Pastor Lance. And I was like, hey, guys, have either of y'all used this quote yet? Because it feels so perfect for what we're talking about. But I feel like I've heard it before. Pastor Lance was like, yeah, last week, man. It's like I took notes. I just didn't write that part down, apparently. But it's almost as you're reading through the book of Hebrews, it's, it's almost like he writes for a little while. And then the reader's like, can I really trust him? And the writer of Hebrews keeps writing. Read, and they're like, can I really trust him? And then the writer of Hebrews keeps writing, but some of what he's writing is just what he wrote over here because the question keeps going, can I really trust him? And I think that's one of the questions we're considering this morning. Look at verses 1 through 6. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron was the first high priest appointed, and his sons were the ones who made up the priesthood. Then the Levitical priesthood came later. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'm not going to touch on that because Pastor Lance is excited about preaching on Melchizedek and clearing all that up for you all. It says in verse 7, or in verse 6, so it says, after the order of Melchizedek. All I'm saying about that is it was eternal, there was no beginning, there was no end, and that's something we learned from it. But our second point this morning, as we begin to look, there's some similarities and then there's some differences. We're going to look at a few similarities as if we just look at the priesthood itself, even as inhabited by a human, what can we learn about Jesus? And then we're going to look at one stark difference between Jesus and the others in that role. So our second point this morning, the first in this section, is the high priest was called by God. There was never a high priest who was not called by God. You can't appoint yourself to the role of high priest. If someone were to come in and be like, hey, everybody. I know you don't know me, but I'm here and I'm very important and I'm the new high priest. You don't trust that guy because he can't appoint himself. The high priest was always appointed by God. Like Aaron, who was appointed in his weakness, he didn't take it upon himself. He was appointed by God. Jesus also, not appointed in weakness, did not take the role upon himself. He didn't arrive on the scene like like Caiaphas was the high priest during Jesus' earthly ministry. Like they had, they had names for the high priest. That, that, that was a guy, Caiaphas. And Jesus didn't arrive on the scene. He's like, hey, Caiaphas, you're in my seat. Playtime's over. Get out. I'm here. I am appointing myself as high priest. Jesus did not do that. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. After conquering death, Jesus was appointed by God to this eternal role of high priest. And God bestowed that honor on Jesus as a son. Next is the high priest acted on behalf of men in relation to God. In the system that that I've cited this morning, there were thousands of years where God's people understood that their sin separated them from God. So God appointed a role in which a sinful people could still have fellowship with a sinless God. There was a sense in which they could have a relationship with God through the priesthood. But sacrifices must be made to atone for the sins of the people. So the the ones appointed to this role were available. Like they had to be available. 
Like there was never a time probably where you get your goat on a rope leash and you walk in it to the temple to make a sacrifice and it's like out for lunch on the door. That's, that's, that's irrational. They, they were available. There, there was a need for that role always. That's why there were multiple priests and the one high priest. They were available. They were interceding. And they were advocating for the people. They were receiving those sacrifices that were the atonement for the sins. And they were taking them and they were burning them so that it would be a pleasing aroma unto the Lord. There was a sense in which the Lord could be pleased through that because God designed it that way. And those high priests were available, interceding, and advocating. So Jesus acts on behalf of men in relation to God. Listen to these these scriptures, Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Like, who is to condemn you? That would be Satan. He is the one who condemns. He is the one who accuses. And he wants you to feel as though you're too filthy and too guilty to ever be made right and to ever be made clean and to ever be right with God. You don't deserve it. You're never going to be good enough. And the reality is there's some truth in that. But the big lie is that there is redemption. And then this verse, it's who is to condemn. If you're struggling with those thoughts of just feeling condemned and like there's something you got to do to, do, to like get right with Jesus, it says who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. To intercede is to intervene on behalf of someone else because they need it and they can't do something themselves. That's what Jesus is currently doing. He's at the right hand of the Father, and it says he, he intervenes for us. Like everyone in here, he, he intervenes with specificity. It's not likely that it's a flippant thing going on between the Father and the Son right now as he is intervening. It's not like Jesus is in a lazy boy being like, oh, yeah, that one, that one's mine too, covered in my blood. Next. It was probably, no, this is what's going on in this person's life on, on this Tuesday, and, and, and he needs this help here, Lord, and there's this intervening where he knows our deepest needs before we voice them. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He's either going to use power to deliver us from something that's hard, or he's going to use that power to deliver us through something that's hard. But he's going to help us no matter what. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Jesus acts on behalf of men in relation to God. 1 John 2.1 My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal. Imagine how wonderful it would be if that could be the end of the sermon. Hey, guys, I think when we boil it all down, stop sinning. Just go home and just stop sinning. But it goes on to say, but if you do sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So even when you do sin, it's not hopeless. And when you understand that hope, you begin to sin less. Hebrews 7, 24 through 25 says, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is saving, he is interceding in the same way in the Old Testament when they would go to the priests to, to, to have some connection with the Lord. So he saves to the othermost, those who draw near to him, those who draw near to God through Jesus. The fourth point this morning is that the high priest was gentle and tender. I love this, and it's confusing. So we're going to take a minute on it. 
the high priest was gentle and tender. It says specifically in verses 2 through 3, he, the earthly high priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Again, to be clear, we are the ignorant and wayward, right? And the priest is like, uh, me too. So like, it's, someone used this to encourage me in ministry, and I just thought it was funny. You can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. And I'm like, okay, that feels weird to call him that. And he's like, because you are, because you're ignorant and wayward. And so here we see that he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he himself is beset with weakness. And because of this, the weakness, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. First, I would imagine that the role of the priest was an exhausting one. The high priest, maybe even more so. The high priest would have the one time a year where he could go into that most holy place and, and intercede and, on behalf of all the people. And there was, there was a really special moment that only he could do. But then there was just this dailiness of the priesthood, day in and day out. And just, I thought, everyone loves to read from Leviticus. So I just thought, man, let's do it. Let's do this. Let's read from Leviticus. Because, so I, I, I used to have the opportunity to teach uh, just an adult Bible study on Wednesday nights for like over a decade. And I was like, we're just going to go through the Bible. And I spent like five years on Genesis and Exodus. And when I got to Leviticus, I was like, nah, we're going to do this in like three weeks, maybe five. And Because and and you're like, it's just blood everywhere. And it's, it's exhausting. And then when you get blood and then there's more blood. And there's some blood over there. And then there's some blood over there. And then this blood has to be here. This blood can't be there because that blood has to be there. And it is exhausting. But just, just to kind of gain some insight into that role of the priest, this is just Leviticus 1, just the laws for the burnt offerings. That's it. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and saying to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, just import your senses. This is called observation. It's the most important step of Bible study. What does it look like? What would this smell like? What would it sound like? What would it feel like to be bringing your own offering? What would it feel like to be the priest who, who has to go through what we're about to see? What would it be like? Import your senses. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. You can't bring your three-legged, one-eyed piece of livestock to your sacrifice and be like, yeah, it's really important that my sins are atoned for and also this one isn't very valuable. You can't do that. You bring the one without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall fillet the burnt offering and cut it into pieces and the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange pieces, the head, the fat, and on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but the entrails and its legs he shall wash with water and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If the gift of the burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or the goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side, not at the entrance. There's like a policy and procedure manuals for the priesthood here. 
He should kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, very bloody. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If, however, this burnt offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds... Then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar. Ring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east, the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely, and the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Beyond this, this is just the burnt offering. I'm not going to keep reading because I would lose all of you. You'd slowly go home. But we do see priestly responsibilities for the grain offerings, for the peace offerings, for the sin offerings, and also for the guilt offerings. I could imagine it being a regular occasion where the priests would think to themselves, enough with the sinning already. Right? That was one offering. They were doing that all the time for all of the people, day after day after day. Enough with the sinning already. My goodness, there's no end to these offerings and sacrifices because there's no end to the sins of these people. There's got to be a better way. And just when the frustration began to boil over for this priesthood, began to boil over because of all the ignorance and all the waywardness, And there was this humble reminder that it was now time for them to make sacrifices for their own sins, for their own ignorance, for their own waywardness, the sins of the priesthood. The priests could relate to the people in that sense. You might say that the ground was level at the entrance of the temple. So here we see something really interesting about weakness. There's something about weakness that's connected to the gentleness of the priest. He can be gentle with the wayward inner because he, be, he himself is beset with weakness. So there's something about weakness that we're learning here about this role of the priest and, and it helps us it's eventually to understand more about Jesus. So the weakness is there's something about it that allows the priest to be gentle, which, a, which is a commendable thing. He can show compassion. He can show understanding. He can show empathy. But also, there is something about weakness that makes him obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, which is less commendable or not commendable at all. So in one way, weakness led to gentleness, and in another way, weakness led to sinfulness, hence the need for a sacrifice. So we have to ask, what's going on here? How is weakness leading to two different things? And that phrase, beset with weakness, in the original language is closer to compassed with infirmity, which isn't helpful at all because that sounds more confusing to me than beset with weakness. So we got to dig even deeper into those words. And here's what we find. To be beset with weakness is to be enclosed or encircled with feebleness of body or mind, shackled by frailty, fettered by disease, surrounded by many ways in which you are lacking strength. Does anybody relate to that? What are the ways that you're lacking strength? What are those areas where if I asked you, like, 
I'm just not strong in maybe it's finances. Maybe it's relationships and friendships or marriage. Maybe it's parenting. Maybe it's, I always feel like I always struggle with self-control or pridefulness or anger or lust. There's all kinds of weaknesses. Has anybody ever woke up like one day you were fine and then you woke up and your knees hurt? And they just never stopped hurting? Why did two young people raise their hands? That was interesting. <laughs> I'm sorry, fellas. But yeah, you, like your knees just hurt and they just kind of keep hurting. And that's just the new norm. You're kind of this, it's sort of this weakness. It's this thing that's frustrating and it slows you down. Or maybe you've reached that point in life where you find yourself, when you're in discussions with your friends, you, you talk a lot about what medications you're taking. <laughs> I remember my grandmother used to, like, Christmas, Thanksgiving, we gather, 90% of it was explaining why she can't take this pill anymore because this pill had an adverse reaction with that pill. So now we had to do two whole new sets of pills, which this whole packet doesn't work anymore. And I can only take those on Tuesday. And then I got to put this stuff on my hands or they're just going hurt. Cause and I'm like, this is exhausting. But now I find myself in my 40s, I'm like, you, you take blood pressure medicine too? You got, you're on a statin? You know, like there's this weakness. There's, weakness can come in many forms. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's not physical. But it's not hard for us to relate to this idea of kind of being fettered by something that slows us down that can be very frustrating. Something that's hard, that we don't feel like we're strong at it. The weakness spoken of here is the same as in 2 Corinthians 12, that Paul says, I will not boast about anything except my weakness. What a weirdo, right? Like, I don't understand that. Like, I'm not going to boast about anything. I've had these amazing experiences, but if I want to boast... I'm going to boast about my weakness. And he goes on to say, But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Weakness is a reality that some of us respond to differently in our flesh. Scripture says to put sin to death, and for me personally, my natural inclination is to also want to put weakness to death. I hate things that don't make me feel good. I hate things that slow me down. I hate things that feel like a hindrance when I feel like God is calling us to so much more in life. Why would he call us to do these high and great things when we're going to be slowed down by something like our knees or something? So to me, my natural inclination is like, yeah, let's put weakness to death too, but that's not what Scripture says. Viewing them as nearly indiscriminate from one another is wrong because they're different biblically. We boast in our weakness, but never in our sin. We don't boast in our sin. And we put sin to death while we boast in our weakness. So there's something about this dynamic here on the weakness, in one way leading to maybe gentleness and compassion and empathy, and the other way it leads towards sin. There's something about this that helps us to understand Jesus more thoroughly through the priestly role. And look at verses 7 through 10. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. It's crazy to think that Jesus could learn obedience through what he suffered, and it's not, that's not okay for us. 
We learn obedience through what we suffer. When we're suffering, he's interceding and helping, and he's either going to deliver us from it or through it, but there is help, and we learn obedience through suffering as the Lord did. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The big difference that makes all the difference is Jesus never sinned. Jesus never sinned. If you're like, really? That's your last point of the morning? Yep, it is. Jesus never sinned. It's a pretty big deal. The fact that Jesus was tempted but never sinned is hugely significant. This was unprecedented. Not just in the priesthood, but in all of humanity, no one had ever done this. He never sinned. This was the quote that Lance referenced last week, and we're going to do it this week again because there are no rules that say I can't. There was someone who said to C.S. Lewis one time, how can Jesus really understand my temptation if he never sinned? And you might identify with that this morning as you sit here. You might be thinking, he does not understand the feelings I have when I'm tempted, the things that I feel inclined to do. There's no way Jesus can understand that. And that's false. So the the person posing this question to C.S. Lewis was posing the same question. How can Jesus possibly understand me if he never actually gave into the temptation and sin? And C.S. Lewis said, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. We never find out the strength of evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. C.S. Lewis is saying, you think Jesus doesn't understand you because you gave into temptation about this far into it. But he never gave in. He never gave in to the temptation. And you think somehow he doesn't understand temptation. No, you don't understand temptation the way that he does. You don't understand how the the difficulty and the, the perseverance it takes to go through all of the temptation and never yield because you gave up so early in so many ways. Maybe it's in marriage. Maybe it's in addiction of some kind. Maybe it's in feelings that you know aren't true but you don't want to let go of them. We, don't, we gave up early. Jesus never gave up. And so what C.S. Lewis is saying is we never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. He's far more in touch with reality than we are. Calvin stated, he, for our good, subjected himself to our infirmities. He subjected himself to our weaknesses. That's what's being explained in verses 7 through 9. When we think of Jesus offering loud cries and tears to God, most of us think of Gethsemane, or the cross, where death and the cross were drawing near, and Jesus, in a moment of anguish, cries out to God with tears of blood, saying, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will be done, your will be done. There was anguish in that moment. He felt weakness. He felt fatigue. He felt fear. He felt hunger. He felt weakness. His human body came with some limitations. And what I think we sometimes fail to consider is that his human body also came with the opportunity to sin. He was tempted. The fact that Jesus resisted temptation is only remarkable if there were the possibility of him giving in to temptation. When we say the phrase, Jesus never sinned, it loses its punch 
if it were never possible for him to have sinned. And I think this verse shines a light on what that looked like for him day in and day out. It says, in the days of his flesh, he offered up these prayers with loud cries, with supplication. There was anguish. In the days of his flesh, and that doesn't indicate a point in time like the Garden of Gethsemane or being on the cross. It actually indicates the duration of his life. That was the life that he lived when he was conquering sin for us. A life where daily he was offering up prayers to God for help. Daily there were tears. Daily there was a battle because daily there was temptation. There was a dailiness about this in his pursuit of perfect human holiness which had never been achieved. He could have, list, he could have silenced his critics. He could have silenced his doubters and his mockers in a moment, but it would have meant sin. He could have brought himself off the cross. He could have done all the things that Satan tempted him in, but it would have meant sin. He could have given in to lust. He could have given in to greed, pride, anger, you name it, but he didn't. Jesus always resisted temptation. We often give in in just a few moments or a few minutes or a few days. We don't know temptation the way that Jesus does. He never gave way to the solicitations of the flesh, and he was made perfect through that. Behold him in the way God made for him to be beheld. He was proven when we were not. And his soul-wrenching pleading to his father came from a place of understanding that one sinful act, one sinful thought, and he was no longer fit to be a holy sacrifice and humanity would be doomed eternally. That's why he battled. One sinful act and it's over. It is game over for us. At that point, he would be no different. He would not be fit to be a great high priest. He would, in fact, have to go get a bull or a goat or a ram and offer a sacrifice for his own sins. But his weakness never resulted in sin. So he gets us, and by God's grace, we can get him. We can, we can behold him the way he was meant to be. We can look upon him in awe and worship and wonder the way that God designed for him to be looked upon. He was more in touch with reality than we are, not less. He experienced the full extent of fighting against sin, and he won. Some application points for us this morning. Number one, consider the areas where you lack strength, where you feel feeble, and where you are beset with weakness. And if you're sitting here thinking, I don't have any, just start with pride. We all do. Before you do anything with those things, consider them. Think about it. Think about how you're beset with weakness. Think about those areas where you, you're, you're open to temptation. And then, two, I want you to identify areas where you feel tempted towards sin because of your weakness. Some of us know exactly, most of us, all of us, to some extent, know exactly what it, know, what it is to know where you're going to be tempted to know when you're going to try to make opportunity for the flesh, to know when you're going to be weak and, and, and maybe isolated. I want you to think about those areas where you might feel tempted towards sin because of your weakness, and I encourage you to seek help from Jesus because he's interceding for you at the right hand of God in particular ways. 
So seek help from Jesus. And third, identify areas where you have already given into the temptation and the sin. Identify the areas where you've already done that. And confess your sin to Jesus and seek help from Jesus because it is there for the taking by faith. Free gift. Notice a pattern. Go to Jesus. Number two, go to Jesus. Number three, go to Jesus. And number four, be gentle. Like our Lord. Be gentle. We live in a culture that's not gentle. We live in a culture that kind of, we devour one another. Things that our kids are exposed to online, mean-spirited words and unkindness. In a culture like the one we live in, be gentle. Don't provoke your children to anger. Refuse to get into an unholy conversation or an unholy argument with your spouse. If someone comes to you and they share something that they're struggling with, don't act like they're weird because you're far more like them than you are different. Be gentle. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for our time this morning. We're thankful for this beautiful reality of Jesus as a high priest, and we're thankful that in your infinite wisdom and in your help, we can, in fact, see more beauty and behold more wonder in Jesus, even from a role that we haven't really known personally for thousands of years. God, your ways are higher than our ways, and we're reminded of it every time we gather together to open the word. Your designs are brilliant. Your plans are, are so far beyond the scope of anything we could come up with, and we're very thankful that you are a God who has provided a way for sinners like us to still have a beautiful relationship with you in Christ. We're thankful to know that we have never been forsaken, that we have never been left alone, but that we are being tended to in ways we don't even know as the Son intercedes for us. We love you, Lord, and we humble ourselves before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.